Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. It's 10 p.m. I'm not, you know, not known for being on my game after 10 a.m., so... What's your what's your regular bedtime? You're a pretty early early riser. I know you get up and do some runs and do some work in the morning. Yeah, no, I never run in the morning. But hmm? yeah, sometimes I, t- I can't run in the morning. No, when we've traveled in the past, you've run in the morning. Oh yeah, that's is that only yeah, because I forced you to do it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio episode. Um, I don't know, eighty-eight maybe. Um, we have a very special guest on the show today and a good show coming up. But before we introduce our guest, I wanted to mention something that most of you probably already know about. That's right, delayed news and <laughs> biased <laughs> findings. That's what our show's about. Um, there is a conference coming up in October called TensorFlow World. Have you heard about this, Matt? I have not. It sounds what pretty is cool. It? Um, I don't know, but the link is in the show notes if you want to check it out for yourself. It is sponsored in part by Google, and I think that basically it's just a bunch of machine learning nerds getting together to talk about what they've done in the TensorFlow okay. framework. So it's kind of like a user group meeting kind of thing? Or, uh, yeah, I guess maybe. so. Hmm. Tug? I expect it's probably called or to fug. Various methodologies united by a common framework. Right, I like it. Okay. (laughs) Um, So where where is it? Is it in Austin? Santa Clara. Oh, of course, yeah. I see. Yeah. So it's it's not a Google conference. It's like a commercial conference. Is it one of those type of things? A lot of well, invited owned by O'Reilly. So Uh, okay. You know. Okay, that's cool. I went to a. Oh, what's it called? God, can't remember. I went to an O'Reilly conference in London a few years ago, and I thought it was great. Actually, I really liked it. It was it was sort of one of the earlier um, data style, you know, da- big data conferences. There were a lot of database people there, as I remember. CouchDB, MongoDB were all like, you know, the folks in the exhibition bit. But it was one of the conferences that kind of opened my mind to what conferences should be like and have. Um, and I had a you know I had a bit of the kind of pizzazz with colored lights and electronic music before each speaker and stuff like that. But um, they had things like author office hours, which I thought was really cool where you could go and like chat to the author, like the author will be over there for you know those cool. uh, times. So go catch them there. Um, and they had birds of a feather type meet meetups going on. So yeah, cool. You get your money's worth. Awesome. Uh, so I just read your note in in your show notes, and I want to hear your news instead of my news because I think it's more interesting. Markov chains. <laughs> Let me jog your memory. You don't have Markov chains. Markov chains. Uh, yeah. Well, I mentioned uh, Markov chains, and I was fiddling around with stratigraphic uh, successions the other day. Um, and I can use a little the, background on that if you don't mind. All right, cool. Well, um, so a Markov process is a, a process that I've in got which, the stratigraphic stuff I didn't follow. Ah, okay. So yeah. So well, just for our listeners, the Good idea, idea is that the, the the state at a given time step or spatial step depends only on the previous state or potentially on some number of previous states if you want to kind of generalize. The process and in a hidden Markov uh, chain, you might also specify some hidden states which aren't expressed in the kind of end result. Anyway, stratigraphy is the sort of succession of rocks recorded in the rock record. Uh, so when you look at a cliff, say you'd start at the bottom 
and go, you know, here's a bunch of mudstone, and then we get gradually more sand, and then maybe there's a coarse sandstone and some pebbles that might represent, you know, um, I guess the idea is that these different rock types represent different depositional environments. So there might be like offshore muds, a beach, a river, alluvial fan, this kind of thing. And um, because that's recording what's happening at that place over time, you know, there's this idea that it's a sequence, it's a succession that builds up through, in a one direction, you know, through geological time, um, where because deposition environments are next to each other spatially, um, the idea is that you, if things evolve, quote unquote, smoothly, you will only ever see those neighboring uh, rock types neighboring in a vertical sense as well, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. If you get a sudden jump from offshore mudstones to a river, you know something weird has happened. So, so right, so um, there are sort of expected and unexpected or unusual transitions um, through this uh, pile of rocks. So anyway, um, people have been applying this for quite a while in stratigraphy, I would say since like the 60s, um, Markov chains that is, and I was fiddling about with it. Anyway, sorry, I'm sorry, Graham, this is turning into a long, that was a recap. Um, another thing I've gone on about- First contact, showing up warning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you might be interested in this too, Kyle, because this is, a I think, of quite an interesting problem. I am. Um, I thought know, those layers were there put by Satan to fool us into thinking the world was older than 6,000 years. So I <laughs> more. Well, wherever they came from, right. you know, that's what we're interested in, uh, the, the mind of Satan. Um, so, so, the, the, so that was one problem. So the other side of the problem, and this is completely unrelated, or, or so I thought, um, was taking a pseudo-color image right so this is a, a something like say a topographic map that someone has taken a color map and made a rendering of it as a raster right so um uh you know you see these sorts of images all the time in science and um they often represent maps or some kind of you know um two or three d data set in geoscience and what I was interested in was the problem of extracting data from a given map. So you come across, a, a you know, you're reading a paper, you come across figure three, there's a raster there, and you're like, I wish I had that digital elevation model or whatever, because I want to play around with it. How can I extract that data? And if you know the color map, it's quite easy, because you just have to basically use the color map as a lookup table, and you can look up the, each data value. If you don't know the color map, it's quite hard. Um, it's quite a hard problem to solve. So I spent a bit of time two years ago trying to figure this out. And after I mentioned Markov chains the other day in a blog post, some chap in Finland goes, well, you could use Markov chains to solve your map problem because you can, you can infer the color map by looking at what colors are neighbors in this raster and make a Markov chain clever. from it. Yeah. So yeah, I wish I some chap, some chap, by the way, we should note is Ari, who is yes. like the puzzle master. He's yeah. awesome at figuring out these quirky little tidbits. And so this is Ari Hartikainen in uh, Finland, who's um, some kind of savant when it comes to uh, d d data <laughs> and, pi and NumPy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so he and or I will be blogging about this at some point. Cool. I better shut up. I'm sorry. I've got enough about it. <laughs> there must be at least one more assumption in there, right? Shouldn't it be that you're assuming it's a linear gradient or something like that? Because otherwise, they could be two neighbors, but it could be very steep in that point, and you because somebody used a crazy color map, and you could lose yes. that fidelity. Yes. Yeah. There are like there are some things like the polarity of the data you can't infer. Mm. You also <laughs> yep. can't know the scale, like mm. unless you know. You've got some other piece of information about where it starts and stops. And yeah, you also do have to assume that the mapping was linear in the first place. And there's a bunch of ways you could apply that assumption, I right. guess. Um, which, yeah, a you're person, right. which a reasonable person should have done, right? I would imagine in creating a color palette. 
Yeah, I mean, there are some famous, famously bad color palettes, though, as you probably know. Um, you know, but but still. So anyway, the next stop, the, the idea is to create a Twitter bot which looks for horrendous scientific images with like rainbow color bars, chastises the person for, for <laughs> using that color bar and fixes it and posts a better version with a with a perceptually linear color bar. Hey, so I like that. Already, you probably already <laughs> got this, but I have an, I wrote a Node app to do that a couple of years ago. So if you want the code, I can give it to you. Oh, okay. A Node app that like sits on Twitter watching for yeah. whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Okay, let me introduce our guest. <laughs> Please. After the Matt soliloquy. <laughs> um, so we have Kyle Polich on the show today. He is the author and owner of a podcast, my favorite podcast called oh, Data Skeptic. So welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks for having me. I uh, I recently found out that your sh you you your website has a donate button. You have the re you have a merch store. You have the whole thing. Um, so I went on there and, and bought myself some merch, which I thought was awesome. So I know we have a lot of listeners to in our show who um, are data scientists or are aspiring data scientists. So um, listen to Kyle's show, Data Skeptic, dataskeptic.com. It's awesome. If you want to do donate to us, you can't because we don't accept donations. So go <laughs> donate to Data Skeptic. And, uh, or I suppose you could fly to Austin, buy me a cup of coffee. I'll drink half of it. Put the other half on a thermos and mail it to Matt in Nova Scotia. <laughs> anyway, check out Data Skeptic. It's awesome. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. How do you My know pleasure. much about Markov chains? Um, well, Markov chains play a big role in uh, POMDPs, which are something I studied heavily in grad school. So uh, a mm. POMDP or a partially observable Markov decision process. It's a beautiful framework that has slightly fallen out of favor because it's computationally expensive. Mm -hmm. But uh, to give you the view from 50,000 feet, happy to go into more detail if you're interested. But basically, if you can state any problem in a somewhat formal way, uh, like make the Markov assumption, simple stuff like that, you know the states, the universe of states and the transition function, some kind of general assumptions, <clears throat> even if they're probabilistic, you have the model then you can solve that, albeit in a very computationally expensive way, and the output is a policy that's a finite state machine. So to break that down even further, no matter how hard your situation is, you can come up with a very simple solution of how to behave to win at that game or to be optimal in that environment. And so Markov plays a, a big role in all the proofs that the thing converges or can converge under certain circumstances. Cool. Have yeah. you used so what, industry? Yeah, I think that's what I was going to ask. Like, what do you apply that to? No, I'm constantly looking for excuses. It has been used in industry. Uh, one of the major authors, Anthony Cassandra, evidently started a consulting company where he just does POMDPs. I don't know how it went. They're not publicly traded or anything, but that's not really the measure of success. Um, so yeah, I'm always looking for excuses, but I, I'm yet to find the one where I can take it to industry without wasting a client's time. I mean, it seems like um, you would apply this in systems control settings, something like that. For sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like a factory industrial thing with a, an array of valves and that kind of thing would be a great application. I was more interested in autonomous agents. So there's mm -hmm. like, you know, self-driving cars probably are doing some POMDP stuff. And there's been recent advancements where they've injected deep learning into POMDPs, which has been a, a major step forward. So. Lots of interesting stuff going on. Perhaps it'll become more common parlance in the next five or 10 years. Cool. Yeah, we, um, let me jump to my last question of show notes right now. I think it's appropriate. We, we've worked on a bunch of system control types of applications recently. Um, one of over the past, I guess, couple of years now, uh, one of which, which is most prevalent for my work is, is in supply chain. So we do bunches of um, like rough and fine cut supply chain planning, and then maybe more concretely uh, at the last stage of the supply chain for fulfillment chain planning. So we're actually routing, basically performing the, the vehicle routing problem. Um, and we've, we've sent vehicles around, built optimized schedules for pickups and drop-offs for various uh, vehicles using reinforcement learning. Nice. Um, yeah, and it's kind of soft though. It's not, in contrast to some of these other statistical methods, you kind of just have that you have a pool of agents and each agent drives one of the 
one of the vehicles with its plane or a train or whatever. Um, and I wonder, so I am, I'm always wondering if the thing is sort of too autonomous, too hands off. We don't have, we don't have a great mechanism for diving in and teasing out the details of particular neighborhoods or, or routes or anything like that. It's a decentralized problem or you can centralize it. You can pseudo centralize it based on, um, constraints in the system. Like for instance, if you have some sort of hours of service constraint, you might have um, uh, particular neighborhoods in the system which are only capable of routing so much good, so many goods per time step. Um, or you could have agent constraints, again, hours of service where they're, you know, only each vehicle is only allowed to drive a certain number of hours before resting. Mm. Um, but I don't know, it sounds like you know, do, do, you, do you have finer grain control using a Pompey tree than you might have with something that's fully, fully decentralized, I suppose? Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. I have so, some reading to do. Yeah. Excuse, <laughs> excuse me while I read. <laughs> Sorry. <Just kidding>. Oh. <laughs> so tell us about the podcast, Kyle. How'd you get into the podcasting biz? Um, well, I guess at some point, uh, you know, I've always had kind of an affinity for radio type stuff um, and was into books on tape and that sort of thing before there even were podcasts. It was a very natural transition for me to uh, be an avid podcast consumer. And at some point, I wanted to do my own show. So uh, it wasn't even necessarily going to be data science related. Uh, I had an idea to do a show called Caper where every season is how to pull off a particular crime and every episode is some step in it. So like a season on how to rob a bank. Well, you got to know, you know, how do you check for if the notes are marked? How do you get the getaway car? Can you move it offshore and that kind of stuff. And uh, it just seemed like a little bit of a legal gray zone. So I thought maybe <laughs> a, an easier thing to do with say. being data skeptic. I was going to say, <laughs> do you live in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I love it. Um, so have you, how long have you been a data scientist? And I assume that's what led you into the data science topic on the podcast. Yeah. So I, I guess I have a cliched answer that I've been kind of doing it since before we had that terminology. I, uh, I think my earliest title in industry was like uh, algorithms engineer or something like that. Um, and you know, as this term emerged, I was like, oh, I guess that's what I am. And at some point I got a new job and that was the title. Nice. I think I prefer algorithms engineer though. Yeah, it does sound very cool. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of companies were you working for? You know, a big mix. I uh, worked a lot in ad tech. I worked in market research. And then as a consultant, I've kind of been all over the place. Mm -hmm. Cool. I mean, you guys know as well as me, everybody has data and uh, the algorithms don't really discriminate by industry. Yep. <laughs> That's what I'm always yeah. talking to my new customers. <laughs> um, cool. So, uh, are you you're actively consulting now? Then, uh, yeah, I, we're not necessarily taking on any projects at the moment, but that's the core of mostly what we do. Cool. What kind of what kind of work do you, have you got going on? Like, what kind of industries are you in these days? Um, we're uh, in, in one client. We're winding up a big project with is in identity management. So, a lot of heavy duty Spark, ETL, data engineering stuff. Um, another project is all Kinesis based, so a big streaming machine learning system, and then uh, just kicking off some image recognition stuff that's uh, it's going to be all TensorFlow based. Very cool. Yeah, sounds like you're deep in the thick of it. We, uh, you know, we often get mired in the the details of data cleaning and uh, just ETL stuff. So it's cool sure. to be able to do some real heavy duty modeling. Mm -hmm. And so, it sounds like you're one of a, you're in a team there, or is that? Uh... Yeah, so I've got ten people. We're just a small little uh, group, kind of like the A team. If you can find us, maybe uh, you can hire us. Or job too dirty, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. I like that. Stay nimble. That's, that's great. That sounds like a lot of what Matt does. So Matt's uh, got a, a company called Agile Scientific, and they. They work in geoscience and do a lot of quantitative consulting based around what, again, we would now call data science. So it's a lot of parallels there. Sounds cool. What uh, what kind of so if you're in sort of varied industries and working on all these really neat problems, what kind of work do you 
prefer? I mean, what's your favorite stuff to work on? I like to take on projects that are unique, where it's more than just, let's get the features in here, let's run XGBoost, and let's deploy it. It's like, I want to find something where there's a painful step that we're going to have to figure out something novel or interesting to work on. Uh, so when we can get it, that's what I prefer to take on. Um, and obviously, that's a little abstract. That can take a lot of forms. Um, but that's half the fun, you know. And uh, the best part about it, too, is then to think, all right, do I have to build some specialized tool for this use case? Or is there an opportunity here to build something more generalizable? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's IP that we can work with. So that's sort of the optimistic, uh, aspirational model. Cool. So you guys building sort of uh, toolkits or, or stem cells to, to do asset-based consulting with now? Yeah. The, the best thing we have along those lines, well, we have kind of two half-baked, one, I would say, th three-quarters baked thing and one-quarter baked thing. Uh, we have a platform for NLP and chatbots that is getting pretty advanced that we're going to actually do some announcements with later this year. And then we have some time series analysis software that uh, one who is less sane than we are would be able to work with. But at some point, you know, we'll evolve it to a state where it's generalizable. Nice. That's very cool. Um, I've been doing a lot of NLP work recently doing... Um, sort of uh, narrative summary and, and text generation based off of stream and data input. Nice. Um, so it's been, it's been cool. Um, it is, I, I'm not an NLP expert by any means. And so it's been nice to kind of dig back deeply into the literature and start to play with some of these techniques. And um, because transfer learning is just yes. such a powerful thing and, you know, TensorFlow Hub and all these things, you can get pre-trained models. Mm -hmm. um, kind of shocking how, how well you can do yeah. <laughs> with such little training. Have you been playing around with Bert? Yeah, I've yeah. been playing with Bert. It's magic. Playing... It, it's insane. I mean, so <laughs> Matt, have you played with Bert? No, no. Yeah, it's um, you can do a bunch. It's it's pretty flexible framework, and you get one of the things that you can do with it that we've been using it for a little bit is to do um, machine translation. So um, we're not necessarily unfortunately this is a top secret project so i can't go into specifics but we're not necessarily doing natural language processing we're doing sort of uh what would you call that unnatural, unnatural. Language processing. that's it that's it yeah, yeah but very so cool what, what or who is bert then a uh, bird is a, a new well it's a continuation there's been a couple of major papers there was elmo and OpenAI has gpt2 that there was some you know, pseudo controversy around because they didn't release it. BERT is the model along those lines that Google released. Um, and we could talk about the architecture, but the high level of it is it takes an arbitrary length text input and gives you a fixed length vector embedding. And just using those vector embeddings out of the box, you know, no transfer learning, nothing special like that, it, uh, beats all the known benchmarks on a wide array of unrelated NLP tasks. So the embedding it offers you is, is encoded in such a way that machine learning just sucks it right up and knows what to do with it. Huh, amazing. Pretty amazing. He's a yeah, transfer, transformer model. Yeah. Um, so like word to vec uh, only adding more context to it, I guess, is a, another way to look at it. Right, I see. Yeah, interesting. Um, head self-attention, mm -hmm. they call it. Yep. I know some people like that. Um, so uh, it's, I noticed that uh, a lot of your recent podcast episodes have been on NLP. Um, is, is that how it, the, the episodes have tended to sort of follow your current interests? Is, does it kind of go alongside like that or is it totally dissociated? Well, I'm interested in everything we do on the show, legitimate, genuinely, but uh, we pick two themes a year. Uh, we just started this, I guess, this is kind of like our second and a half year. So okay. uh, like last year, uh, January through June was artificial intelligence, July through December was fake news, and we've been on uh, natural language processing since the start of the year. We'll switch in July. And so having these kind of themes does a couple of things for me. One, it makes the show actually a lot easier to produce because the you know the bear, the boundaries of what I might consider are constrained. So I can mm -hmm. go do a literature search and say like, all right, here's five papers I want to interview all the authors of or different projects. So thematically helps me plan things. But I think also kind of makes the show a little bit more cohesive and good to follow. 
um, in the way that, you know, um, a TV show, well, I guess TV shows don't fit the model, something like Doctor Who, right? If you don't like a doctor, all right, stop watching for a couple of years. Oh, they're doing <laughs> something new. Let me check it out again. Uh, yeah, right. So I hope that I'm kind of producing something akin to like an album in that regard. Like people will go back to themes and that's, you know, I can tell you to start someplace that interests you. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Yeah. And they, uh, it also seem to, um, seems to give you the, the opportunity to sort of say, well, we'll talk about that in a future, you know, like these things are coming up so you can have a little cliffhangers and, uh, you know, We'll, we'll get into that next week kind of thing. I, I, I thought that was really nice to have those hooks. Yeah, I get to do my Ken Burns impression, I guess. <laughs> do you do you um, use the show for marketing? I mean, do you, do you drive much business through the podcast? Not really. Like uh, an avid listener wouldn't be aware of what I do kind of commercially. Um, I Obviously, that's always there. It's a thought. But I've had a consistent workload, and people have found me from the podcast. So I, I do have, I would say a good third of our clients have come from people who knew me from the show, which has been great. Uh, but I've never been like, Hey, call me up to set up an appointment and do this and that. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't really needed it. And I'm also a little afraid that uh, afraid of that. I would kind of get a response of people who just want to pick my brain, which I love doing like after a conference and all that kind of stuff. But if we're going to set up a call and you know, I, I I guess I want to work with people who are a little bit more serious about a project and my network has been best for that. Sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. We, when we started undersampled radio, we, how many, what was that? I think it was also two and a half years ago, right, Matt? Sounds plausible. Uh, thank you. Um, we, I, I was kind of thinking that we would use it to drive business a bit and then, what we found, or at least what I found, I hope that feels the same is that I just had fun doing it. And I, I like chatting yeah. with folks and hearing about what everybody else is working on. It's such a good way of, it's such a good way of kind of seeing what's coming up, what's what's new and what people are working on sort of in, in alpha. Yeah. And there is, I mean, I, that can change at any time. Obviously you could like super commercialize this at any moment, but even just besides that, just getting on and talking about whatever, some listeners are going to develop a certain affinity for you and you grow the audience big enough. There's going to be somebody who says, I want to work with Matt and Graham because I get where they're at. I know where they're coming from. I hear them every week and I have a certain, you know, one-sided rapport with them. And uh, I certainly feel that about a lot of shows I listen to. And I think, you know, it's, that's part of your pitch in a very subtle sort of way, long-term, I guess. Yeah. What are your favorite podcasts? Oh boy, I gotta grab my phone. Um, I'm kind of a maniac. I've got thousands. Oh, that's an exaggeration, but quite a bit. Um, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and Skeptoid, I really enjoy. Um, the Jason Scott Talks His Way Out of It podcast. Um, let's see. Um, got you guys in here. I've got uh, the Master Feed from Changelog. Software Engineering Daily is great. Um, be reasonable is a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I could go on a science Friday. There's so much good content out there. Yeah. Do you have a commute or something where you listen? Like how, how do you squeeze these things in? Commutes a part of it, chores, um, certain things I can listen to while I work or at least do certain types of work. You know, there are days when it's like, all right, I've got some mostly refactoring and query writing to do. I can listen to two people casually talk while that's going on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So good. It's good to hear that you still stay. You stay in it. Um, I mean, it sounds from your show like you really enjoy doing the technical work and having uh, ten employees. It could be easy to get lost in the administrative details. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got my uh, co-founder who helps out with all that. She does all the hard work, so I get to do the fun stuff. I don't know how I arrange that, but it works great. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Uh, is she? Is she your sidekick on the? Podcast. She is, yeah, Linda, who's also yeah. my wife. So oh, okay, we got okay, on great. a couple levels. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it works really well. The conversation, you know, I like it. Um, do you do you do you script much of it? Like, because you've got a very kind of natural style, and it's sort of so natural. That I feel like, oh, that, that that can't be scripted, but also it just flows so well. I feel like it it must be. Like, how much time do you spend thinking about flow? Um, A fair amount. I try and come in with the structure in my head, not really a script, but ideally the high points. What do I really want to get across? 
but there's also this sort of um, combative isn't the right word, but Linda's not there to learn necessarily the way like if I had gotten some in data science intern who just wants to be a sponge of knowledge. So right. a lot of times I'm trying to brush through the problem and she's, I wouldn't say actively disinterested, but she's not <laughs> trying to be the world's greatest data scientist. So she keeps me honest in a lot of ways and I have to like relate it to more process and everyday things, which I think has actually been a secret to the better episodes because I can't just say like, oh, yeah, convergence on, you know, piecewise linear convex, whatever. Uh, she's going to say, what the heck is that? Or why am I interested? And so I, I do have an outline going in, but we don't always stick to it. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. It's, it's amazing how um, even, even just if the person's not present, having someone in mind when you're describing something that's a bit complicated is a really powerful Totally. sort of mental mental tool and yeah it like we definitely i think in all i'm sure all technical disciplines suffer from the same thing but it's really easy to start talking past people and you're sort of talking to yourself oh, yeah. essentially yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's really I not very so good many lectures like that <laughs> yeah yeah it's it, it's so hard to um remember what what it felt like right to be to be the other person on the other side of that. Very true. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. There must. I feel like there's got to be a, a a mind hack to keep yourself from running away like that. But I've I haven't discovered it. I've I, like I we we teach a class. Um, so one of the things we've been doing a lot lately is teaching Python to like total beginners, and luckily, like one of our one of the people that I teach with a lot. He only really learned Python a couple of years ago, so it's it's amazing how much difference it makes having him in the room. You know, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah, he's a better teacher than I am because because of it. Like you need to <laughs> like it's really almost like I mean, I, there's certainly some masters make fantastic teachers, but I feel like in general, the best teacher is someone who's only like a couple of steps ahead of you and can still like reach back and hold your hand. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, need someone to tap you, you on the shoulder. Do you do much teaching, Kyle? Um, not as much as I used to. I used to do an online mentoring thing that I just don't have the time for mm. anymore. Um, I've been involved in a couple of little boot camps and things like that here and there. Uh, I'll give semi like workshop seminars once in a while, um, which I guess is a form of teaching. But uh, yeah, I've had to kind of buckle down and focus more on projects in the business lately. Mm -hmm. Do you miss it? I, I like to teach, but I don't I don't do very much anymore. I enjoy it, but um, I enjoy it if I'm working with someone a little bit more long term. Mm -hmm. uh, just having like, oh, we're going to do this webinar or something. I don't know the starting points. I don't know how technical mm -hmm. to be. I'd rather grab a hold of somebody and take them through a journey. And that's a much more involved commitment that I don't always at, at this time, at least have the ability to make. Yeah, for sure. I wonder. So I have I have some friends in data science who who will go and, and work for the boot camps to go work uh, mentor one student at a time, and that it's sort of a similar type of um, problem. So the, this person is just now getting you know the, the the students are just now getting spun up on data science, and it's hard to get a foothold or or dive deeply into a particular area of expertise with someone who's just at that very raw beginning. I think yeah. there's some, a little bit of frustration there. Um, but I don't know, I, I kind of, I like this, the total intro teaching. I, I find it fun to just absolutely fire hose people with all this amazing information and give them resources. But maybe <laughs> maybe students well, don't appreciate that, I guess. What, what does total intro mean to you? Uh, I'm reminded of Carl Sagan, who said, uh, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it is true. Yeah, well, there was a thing, uh, I can't remember who posted it um, the other day, but th there was a cartoon, or actually it was a photo that had been annotated in a meme-ish kind of way. And, um, it was a set of stairs um, and they were labeled. I can't really remember and it doesn't really matter, but it was something like statistics, algorithms, object oriented programming, machine learning. 
and there was a kid trying to step onto the top step <laughs> from the bottom. Yeah, and it yeah. sort of said, it sort of said, you know, everybody learning to code or something yeah. like that. Sure. And and I, I they, they always really set me thinking those things because at first I had this slight, a bit of a reaction because there's a bit of a a thing that especially smart people like to do where they're like, oh, you know, machine learning is really hard. I've been doing it for years. You can't just like walk in here. Uh -huh. You know, you, you ain't just going to do this. Like this is, I'm being awesome here. Um, so there's a bit of kind of jealousy, I suppose, is how I perceive sure. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but there's also a lot of truth to it because we experience it in our class. Like everyone just wants to get to machine learning. No one wants to learn about dictionaries and numpy arrays mm -hmm. uh, and you're like well you like you need this like trust me um i don't know i, I like i really struggle like do you have an opinion on like a is it is it something that everyone should be doing is it something all scientists should know how to do like code machine learning is it some do you know what i mean or yeah. or, or is it something that takes years and years and you're just going to have to suck it up well, coding, yes. I can't imagine anyone being a serious scientist or engineer who's not going to learn to code on some level. It's sort of like, you know, I'm a little bit too young to say I remember this, but there was a time when people would say, you know, do I need to learn how to type properly and use the home row and all that stuff? And that's laughable today. It's like, yes, the keyboard is the <laughs> tool for input. You have to have that skill and you don't even put it on a resume because it would be like, why is this here? Um, Coding's going to become like that, but coding's also going to get easier. I mean, I started mm. with Pascal and stuff like that and C. Uh, if you start on Python, my God, you have a head start. Yeah. So mm. um, just, you know, easier, better tooling, better instructions and teaching kind of make that more accessible. And code is just the way to get anything done. Um, I have had the pleasure of every once in a while, well, I know in a lot of organizations, there's some non-technical person who is a wizard at Excel and hmm. they create these like prison inventions. Uh, I don't know if you guys know about yeah. prison inventions. I had a coffee no. table book of it once. Like, Tell me uh, what that means. So people in prisons would want some item and you can't get a lot there. So they'd take like a bed spring right. and a straw yeah. and whatever they could get and they'd make themselves a violin or whatever it was. It's exactly uh, what it is. Yeah, that, it's exactly yeah. what it is. That's Excel. And it's like, in a way it's beautiful like we should put those things yeah. in museums and gasp at them like can you believe that they pulled that out i once saw a excel spreadsheet that was like almost a gigabyte and the woman who created it kept running into all these like out of range issues so she cooked up the scheme where the name of the tab was this like pointer and she could read that and go to a tab it was amazing and i was yeah. like please can i just teach you python and give you pandas because you could do this in like an afternoon. Like what you've done is wonderful, but it's, you weren't quick, equipped with the proper tools. And, you know, so stuff like that mm. is just going to continue to get easier and easier. And anyone in science and engineering is going to do some version of coding. Mm. Uh, machine learning, I'm not sure. I think a lot of machine learning is going to become more and more automated. But there's always going to be a point. Well, I don't know if I should say always. I think for the foreseeable future where there's at least some amount of domain knowledge and some amount of knowing the consequences of the methodologies that does require a practitioner in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really interesting to me, especially as, as, like I say, we go through teaching all these, all these people. And um, I guess my, my concern is because we do, we do actually get to pandas and scikit-learn, and we do spend a day, you know, taking people through like, look how easy it is to train models. Woohoo! Let's train yeah. all the models, and um, and it's kind of enthralling. And you know, sure, like not everybody is kind of still with us at that point. I think for some people at that point, we're just on a bus tour, um, you know, which is fine. I think because they're hearing some language and they're seeing some concepts, and you know, I think that's important for the let's say consumers and interactors with data scientists to be and they get reference that. material and they get reference material sure um it's and it's context for the new way we do stuff um but 
I do wonder a bit if we're heading towards a stage where we end up almost with a new set of prison inventions where like now instead of crazy spreadsheets everywhere and you know we we end up with crazy models everywhere and broken CSV files and just chunk like random Jupyter notebooks on everyone's C drives and no one knows what anything does and there's no uh -huh. QC anywhere. So uh, like I, 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 I feel like that headache no one's got that headache yet, at least not in the domain that we work in, which is mostly mm -hmm. sort of petroleum and subsurface. Um, but I feel a bit like that's where we might be heading. And in a couple of years, people are going to start going, hang on a minute, I'm not sure I want everyone to code anymore because <laughs> now we've got a new chaos, right? Sure. So, yeah. yeah I, but like, if, you, if you get that skill, then you have the ability to make, to clean up. Yes. Okay. Because it's yeah, more customizable a... than Excel. But I still feel the pain. I mean, just because we have GitHub doesn't mean that everything was checked in in the right way and is organized. Um, yeah. There can be uh, institutional amnesia as people leave and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. I, I, no, I th I, you're right, though, Graham. At least you've got. At, at, at least now you've got people with the skills to, in principle, anyway fix it but i think like you're sort of alluding to carl i think you need also people who are saying essentially you're going to need a whole new bunch of ways for it to sort of operate hopefully in a sympathetic way and not a you know stop everything way um yeah. to 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 put pieces in place to say you know here's how we're going to use github and here's what code con like source control looks like and here's what testing looks like and here's how we document things in this company and here's a path to you know making s command line interfaces or making web apps and it's going to be like this you're not just going to publish random nonsense everywhere yeah. i don't know they're, they're nowhere near there yet this is in place big so that, yeah many 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 organizations do have those practices in place yeah, organizations that are already tech loaded and data heavy and doing what's the it. ultimate outcome? I mean, it seems like one end of the spectrum is total stateless. Uh, uh, I don't want to use the word computation, stateless information retrieval, right? So if you imagine a perfectly instantaneous auto ML framework where you could ask a question mm -hmm. and it would learn and sit and give you the answer and you didn't have to do any you didn't have to have any infra or data <laughs> store well, i mean i guess you have to data store but i dream of that day <laughs> <laughs> but you're right i mean to kyle's point to kyle's point you still have to i mean the fun stuff then is is all is the quirky stuff is the custom hardcore no existing solution that's going to work for this yeah, well, maybe that's the point of sort of value creation is that that's where you have to go. Because if, right, if it's yeah. generic and solved, then it isn't valuable. Yeah, we're working um, with a company right now who's uh, heavily positioned in the in the AI domain and, and they outsource their, uh, all of their model building and stuff, which I, I think is super smart. They get reproducible, repeatable results, and they don't have to spend tons and tons of time building infra and models that are simple but need to be built. That's, yeah, I kind of like the idea that you can make things, you can sort of force things to be sort of compact, reproducible, well-documented and tested and stuff by externalizing all of it and saying, I only want, the only things I'm letting through my door are models that look like this. So mm -hmm. It kind of solves the problem, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. Okay. Kyle, do you guys do much work with auto ML or, or um, any solutions like that? Um, not auto ML. It's something uh, we've done some little proof of concepts with to know to make sure. You mean the GCP auto ML or just the idea of auto ML? The idea. I ah. you know, there's many ways to do it. Yeah. We have uh, something we built ourselves that essentially uh, encodes documents as BERT vectors and then does XGBoost on top of that in an automated fashion um, to solve one of the functions in our uh, chatbot stuff.
But other than that, it's a lot of like, let's build a model and then wrap it in a Lambda function or in a Docker container and deploy it somewhere and go through a more formal release process. And are, are these companies uh, like enterprise size? I mean, you guys, what, what size companies are you, are you building this stuff for? I work with small and medium enterprise. So anywhere from, you know, I guess our smallest is like seven people to our largest is international and 500 people. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, I, I'm not totally on board with the outsourcing of everything model, model of modeling. Uh, but I do, I do like the idea that you have you have this ultimately repeatable process. So if you can, I mean, as as you guys know, it's it's such a it's such a big deal. It's 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 almost the biggest deal to be able to shrink wrap data pipelines and their corresponding models to be able to roll back in, let's mm -hmm. say in deployment or like to be able to reproduce a result, something like that. It's, it's non-trivial. It's really, really complicated in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one way is just outsource it, I guess, man. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, no, I, intuitively, I like the idea of, I value the ability to do things more than the thing, right? Yes. So, I mean, that, that's to me, that just feels like the valuable thing is to be able to do stuff. That's why I don't mind like giving virtually everything I do away because the point is that I can do more of it. Um, so I, I'm kind of married to that idea, but I don't know. I can see how it, it could work. I can also see how it could backfire and you could get horribly taken for a ride and end up with essentially nothing. No, you know, oh, we don't actually have anything and now we're totally beholden to this external thing. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I'm not much of a business person, Graham, as you know. <laughs> well, you build cool stuff, man. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I, there was one question in the show notes that I was quite interested in, which is uh, sort of a bit a bit broad, maybe. But I just I did want to give Ch Kyle the chance to sort of chat about what he thinks might be what might be next, or what's what what the way things are uh, unfolding like what or maybe another way to put it a more interesting way and less fluffy way is like what are you excited about uh, over the next sort of year or two um streaming number one uh hmm. serverless uh, in conjunction with streaming and then i would say transfer learning hmm. i can so elaborate the... but i guess those are my high levels <laughs> right um so why do you play streaming so like first so emphatically? Because the technology is, in my opinion, now mature enough that you can develop that way um, mm. without it being a super painful thing. And uh, running a business in that fashion offers a lot of advantages in terms of, um, so one of the things I'm trying to set up as we build one project out to be scalable, there's something we're working on that might eventually have multiple teams all contributing to it. So we're building it on top of Kinesis, and I'm enforcing a pretty strong schema on the event into the Kinesis stream. So new user signs up, new user event. This change happens, that's an event. And everything's totally event-driven. So most of the time, it's just one publisher, one subscriber, very boring stuff. Why do streaming? Well, it's because at any time, a new subscriber could come in and say, I'm listening to that event. I want to do that. So if, for example, um, a marketing team comes online and they want to do some clever attribution, whatever, I don't want to be interrupted. I give them access to the stream. They can hire up independently or borrow people or whatever. But as long as you can mm -hmm. kind of look at that stream go by, do some analytics on it and say, I see the universe of events that are here. I know which ones I want to build into my model. Um, people can kind of function independently while having access to tap into that ground truth, granular transactional event stream of the business. So the, it's, in my opinion, highly decoupled and allows you to do a lot of your implementation on things like uh, Lambda functions or even with 
like some batch container system so that deployment is super easy and you're not worried about scalability and there's just a lot of added benefits. And if it's all on one sort of standard process, uh, and I, I'm not advocating for Kinesis, there are other ways one might do that, but don't reinvent the wheel, use something that's out there. I'm certain that other entrepreneurial people are gonna build systems that plug into those. So on the day that a finance team wants to have some special thing for whatever bean counting BS they're doing, I just say, hey, we have the stream, we did everything good, you guys go plug into it and leave us alone because we're not gonna get into this CapEx, OpEx stuff with you. <laughs> Nano service architecture. Yeah. Yeah, that's very cool. It's, you know, th this was the, this continues to be the dream of microservice architecture, but you're right. Yeah. If you, if you, if you don't have any, you're basically talking about a system that has minimal architecture, right? You just let people, it's ground up. They can use yeah. it if they choose to use it. I'm, I'm more interested to hear why you're so psyched about transfer learning. Is it all about NLP? Um, largely about NLP image recognition as well, obviously. But um, one of the, the truths, I think, uh, that has come around is this data is the new oil phrase. As much as that's a cliche, it's also very true. So, you know, think from perspectives like ours, how can we ever consume or compete with one of the big cloud platforms who has all the data? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is because they have all of the base data, but not necessarily an interest or an ability to extend it anywhere. So like yeah. I'm working with one company right now that's in the billboard space. They've got a nice little corpus of images of billboards, but uh, not necessarily something we could start from scratch and train models on. But some very basic transfer learning allows us to uh, build models that introduce new features that they don't already have, um, you know, extra metadata. And that's enabled only by the existence of, you know, some model that's trained on CIFAR that I can go pick up and extend. And I think we're going to see more and more of that, that there's um, these epic models or epic, uh, you know, binaries that get released by bigger corporations and they do the basics of some task and they're, it's feasible that the average technologist can extend them. Um, mm. And that only stays around as long as the, those models get released. But so far, that's been the trend. Yeah, I was I was just getting ready to follow up with the question: What happens if some of these larger companies with tons and tons of data stop releasing? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of um, one of these. I wouldn't call myself a libertarian by any stretch of the imagination, but I do believe that the free market can solve a lot of things. In fact, like I'd rather people explain their politics like uh, statistically. So we all must believe that some percentage of problems can be solved by the free market. We're just going to disagree about what percentage that is. You know, <laughs> even extremists that say it's zero or it's 100 percent. We all agree that it's within that range. And there's not going to be one cloud provider or one big provider. So for you to say, no, we're closing this, you have to do things in our controlled walled garden environment. That's an opportunity for someone else to say, yeah, you know what, we're going to open ours up. And it seems to be the trend that that's where uh, opportunity will flow. I have, I, maybe this is just my very narrow and uneducated perspective, but it feels like, um, I don't know, I'm just thinking about, say, stock prices. If you want to go find stock prices, like that used to be, there used to be places you could go get stock prices for nothing. Like you could go to Yahoo, like they'd be they'd be 20 minutes behind or whatever. So it was only really for analysis, not for like, you know, you couldn't do um, real-time real trading time with them. Um, but now there's nothing. All of it has been paywalled. All of it has been... Really? Um, exp yeah. It's all yeah, been it's sort good. of basically exploited away. And, that's, and so that's the free market. I guess that works for them. But my perception is that then you lose a whole stratum of experimenters and hackers and you know it it, it, it essentially that the, now there's this sort of weight or a penalty on innovation that um i think it's just kind of it it's sort of insidious in that it sort of goes by kind of unnoticed 
but the heyday of the web, the web API and the mashups is kind of over. Um, mm. And I wonder if a similar thing is coming with models as people start to realize, oh, actually, this trained model is worth something. And I can potentially get people to subscribe to it because I can constantly update it, right? I can have like oh, version sure. 1.2, version 1.3. I mean, that, I mean, subscription models are a fantastic way to make money. So I've, I, I predict that these trained models will go that way too. Um, I mean, I have no problem with that if the model maintainer is doing a value add in that process. Honestly, I don't think like BERT as a subscription makes much sense. I mean, yes, it has to be refreshed for new linguistical things in the evolution of language, but I mean, at the same time, not really. Or, or you could probably extend it yourself in that regard. So that might be someone trying to force a subscription model into a place that doesn't need to exist. But hmm. like the stock stuff, I don't know finance myself. Uh, so if there's no, everything's paywalled, I would imagine, as disappointing as that sounds, there must be somebody who's giving a reasonable hobbyist rate. And if it's like seven bucks a month for, you know, reasonable access, I, I think that's fine. They are maintaining those APIs and, you know, expending bandwidth. And presumably mm -hmm. you want that for something that's investment oriented to the point where seven bucks a month is just kind of, uh, you know, an investment in your hobby. So I think there are models like that that can work. So I'm somewhat optimistic about the whole process. I mean, there, there is another way to incentivize use of those types of things. And this is typically done in, in the dark pool world. So y y there is some minimum trade limit that you, the, and, and you get the data basically for free, right? Okay, so, that's fair, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a cool way to do it. Right? You're, you're incentivized to use their data because potentially you can make money on their exchange and whatever. So it's an interesting mm -hmm. way of doing things. All right, well, before we run out of time, we, we have to do uh, our, our trademark question here, which is, Kyle, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, I just started uh, Possible Minds, 25 Ways of Looking at AI. So uh, this is just the book cover. I stuck the book in my bag. I don't read with book covers, but um, collection of essays edited by John Brockman from some big names like Seth Lloyd and Stuart Russell and Dan Dennett. All um, tag marks in here too, cool. All people uh, sharing thoughts and ideas about where AI may or may not be headed. Is that the Edge Institute or whatever they're called? I don't believe so. Uh, I know what you're talking about at a surface level. I think this is unrelated. I don't see Edge anywhere on here. Okay. But uh, certainly a great overlap with uh, that sort of idea. Yeah, this is Penguin Press. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I, well, I, I'm not actually reading it right now, but it's in my bag. I'm going away on Wednesday. It's in my bag. Um, it's a fascinating <laughs> book. Uh, I, I bought Dake's classic uh, Fundamentals of Reservoir Engineering, um, which I've, you know, I've never had on my shelf. Probably I, Flicking through it, I'm thinking, I probably should have bought this book a long time ago. Um, but I, I quite like these sort of collections of essentially it's just a collection of equations is basically what it boils down to um and some you know i'm on this as you know i like this uh, reproducing papers and essentially turning papers and books and things into code so uh that's going to be my hobby over the next few probably months because it's quite a thick book but it's the classic kind of reservoir engineering text Nice. Nice. <laughs> Sounds like a good one. Keep me busy on the plane. What about you? What have you got? Oh, you're, you're, I think you still had... Oh, you've changed I've, it. Yeah, so when I finished my last book, I said, I'm going to make a concerted effort to start pushing on my Espanol again. So I like yeah. to tell people that I'm watching movies in, in Spanish, but it's not really true because my Spanish isn't good enough. So I, there's this whole section on Netflix of children's <laughs> cartoons and, and shows, and uh, I can barely keep up at that level of, of Spanish. So, um, Do you have the subtitles on or off? I have them on in Spanish. Mm. Okay, good idea. I like that. Yeah, I can't. I can. I can barely keep up. So it's fun. It's good fun, but it, it is almost. Um, I can only sustain my interpretation for so long. So I do <laughs> have to take a break after a while. Actually, I just 
anyway, it's not important. But uh, highly recommended the uh, the Spanish uh, children's cartoons on Netflix. Very good. Okay. Kyle, thanks for joining us on the show today. It was fascinating to talk to you. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, Anytime thanks, you want to come back on, just send us a message. We'd, we'd love to hear more about uh, the projects you're working on and, and the stuff that's up and coming in the biz. Sounds good. And PubDP. Definitely. That's it. That's it. Listeners, <laughs> see you next week.